Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to The Grapevine on Triple R. My name's Alice, filling in for Dylan for the next three hours. So, yeah, I'm going to be keeping you company till midday. Thanks to the wonderful fill-in breakfasters, Jace, Scout and Rach, for the past three hours. I really enjoyed catching uh, that final chat Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which I'm broadcasting from. I'd like to pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. Got a great show lined up for you today and I've had lots of fun prepping for these interviews. At around 9.15, I'm going to be chatting to Elle Gibbs on the phone and talking about the NDIS review that was released publicly on the 6th of December. Elle is an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues and part of the leadership team at the Disability Advocacy Network Australia and through Uh, the network was involved directly with the NDIS review. So it's going to be great to chat to Elle about what some of the key recommendations are, what the implications might be for disability equality and what some of the next steps might be. At around 10, I'll be chatting to adaptation scientist Professor Joanna Nalau from Griffith University, who recently came back from COP28 that was held in Dubai from the 30th of November to the 12th of December. We're going to be chatting about the urgency of climate adaptation and whether this issue was adequately addressed at COP28. At 10.45, I'm going to be speaking with behavioural scientist Kim Borg from Behaviour Works that's associated with Monash University about how we can use behavioural science to promote more sustainable behaviours. And this conversation is going to be held with the backdrop of the Victorian government's 10-year circular economy plan called Recycling Victoria, A New Economy. We're a few years in and you might have noticed some of the key domestic um, facing changes that have occurred, like the multiple waste streams. We have more bins now and cash for cans. So I want to chat to Kim about how we can use the science of behaviour change to encourage us to change our behaviours and really um, push Victoria towards a more sustainable economy. And to round off the show at 11.30, I'm going to chat with Richard Mills, who is the outgoing artistic director of the Victorian Opera, where he's been for 10 years. And to really celebrate his time there, he's leaving with a new opera that he has directed and is conducting called Galileo that is going to be playing for one night only this Wednesday at the Palais Theatre in St Kilda. So... We're going to chat to Richard about Galileo, the opera, and also about his time at the Victorian Opera. So, yeah, big show. 
Stay tuned. In about 10 minutes, I'll be chatting to Elle Gibbs about the NDIS review. And to take us there, we'll start with the track Marvin Descending, which I have been absolutely loving, by Christine and the Queens. You're listening to Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to The Grapevine on Triple R. My name's Alice and I'm covering Dylan this morning. You just heard Avalon Emerson's Entombed in Ice from their 2023 release, uh, which and the charm is what it was called. Avalon Emerson also is an amazing DJ. I think primarily a DJ. So if you haven't watched any of their sets, I don't think Avalon's coming to Australia anytime soon. But YouTube is always a good one for that. And at the top, Christine and the Queens, Marvin descending. I'm really excited now as I have Elle Gibbs on the line, and we're going to be chatting about the NDIS review, which was. Released on the 6th of December, 12-month review that offers 26 recommendations with 139 detailed actions to make them happen. So Elle Gibbs is a disability advocate, social justice advocate who was involved with the NDIS review. So it's great to have you on the line, Elle. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Elle. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So... In an article in The Guardian a couple of months ago, 14th of March, you wrote, imagine if we could fix the NDIS, making it work better for disabled people and their families rather than always having to fight just for the scheme to exist. On the 5th of December, the National Cabinet Agreement uh, occurred. And what was significant about this? And do you think it's going to help us move towards what you vision as a more functional and equal NDIS? For sure. I think it's worth thinking through disability support as not just being about the individualised packages in the NDIS. And I do think that that's what the National Cabinet decision really starts to move us towards. One of the challenges that we've had with the way that the NDIS has rolled out is it's really been a bit of a case of those in and those out. And so for the 10 or 11% of people with disability who get support from the NDIS, um, on the whole, you know, it has been life-changing and amazing to get the kind of public services that disabled people have long argued for. But for those outside the NDIS uh, and for uh, all disabled people, things have often got worse as accessibility in the community hasn't been addressed, hasn't been fixed, and in lots of places it's actually gone backwards. So the National Cabinet Agreement was really important because it got all the states and territories sitting around the table actually agreeing to address some of their, their long-standing issues with things like inaccessible public transport services for people who need a little, a little bit of support to remain independent uh, and hopefully to start to be a little bit less of the buck passing between different bits of government about different bits of us that they will or won't fund. And so it's co-funded then at the federal level and at the state level, right? Yeah, so both the states agreed to contribute more to the actual NDIS itself, to the individualised supports through the NDIS, but they also agreed to a 50-50 funding split with the federal government to fund what the review has called for, which is what they a new bit of jargon because that's exactly what we needed. Uh, it's called foundational supports. So this is basically 
everything outside the NDIS and it is things like, you know, making sure people can access, you know, small amounts of cleaning and gardening to stay independent uh, in their home, Um, you know, things like uh, allied health at school, in early childhood settings, those kind of things. So there's been an agreement for a 50-50 funding split and all of that actually makes the recommendations in the review possible. And foundational supports, does that mean that some people who might be on the NDIS currently are going to not be on the NDIS and accessing foundational supports and then also people who are currently not receiving any support at all might have some form of support? So in a way addressing what has been termed that kind of support gap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people have probably heard Minister Shorten and other people talk about lifeboats and oases and other kind of less than helpful uh, you know, metaphors, but it has been pretty much true. So I'll take the second part of your question first. For people outside the NDIS who haven't been able to get uh, meet the criteria for the NDIS, yes, this will mean that you will be able to get more support outside of the scheme. Um, the way it's going to work is that people, when people come into what this new role of called a navigator, um, every, everyone with disability will be able to access navigators and be able to find supports in the in the place and where they need them. One of the things that all of the disability representative organisations said really clearly in the you know in the lead up to the review coming out and when the review came out was that none of us are going to stand for anyone being removed from the scheme while there's no supports outside. So. Currently, like, you know, about half the NDIS is for kids um, and these kids are, a lot of them, from low socioeconomic families who are getting support for the very first time and this is the only way that they can get the kind of support that they need. So this is kind of things like speech therapy, psychology, you know, allied health mostly and... While there's no supports, foundational supports don't exist yet, we have to we can't make we have to make sure no one is kicked out. Is there a potential issue in terms of the allied health workforce uh, with the proposal to have foundational supports? Oh look, there's an issue with the allied health workforce now, and there has been all the way along with the NDIS. I know that anyone who's tried to get an appointment with an occupational therapist uh, is finding six, twelve months waiting lists and. For kids in particular, a lot of the services are in extraordinarily high demand. So if you're trying to get a diagnosis for your kid to access services, which is how the NDIS and other services work now, you and you can't afford to pay privately, you're facing a two-, three-year wait in public hospital outpatient clinics to get into get an assessment or that kind of stuff. And the workforce challenges across the NDIS are really important to deal with as part of all of this. I mean, there's, they talk about something like 300,000 jobs are created out of the NDIS. And, you know, I think how we figure out the allied health, you know, pipeline will be really important. I mean, one of the things that's been, I'm not going to say unfortunate because it's been part of the original design of the NDIS has been that there's been a degree of private equity moving in and being quite predatory around poaching people coming out of uh, training of allied health and putting people just out of training into much more uh, unsupported roles, et cetera. So there's a kind of churn around workforce uh, in a low-quality delivery of services. And it's probably, I'm trying to be polite here, but... Mm. <laughs> It really hasn't – there's been no strategy around it in the way that we should be delivering these services. So 
it's been that the private sector has been able to be exploitative about people coming out of occupational therapy school in particular, but physios as well, speech therapists, uh, rather than actually having a planned and structured program about making sure that we have enough allied health staff working in the conditions that are going to support them to be in the sector long term, um, to be able to support particularly young children, um, you know, to get what they need when, when and where they need it. And so to continue talking about workforce, so a somewhat divisive recommendation has been that providers will need to be registered. Some people in the community seem to be really celebrating this recommendation and others seem quite um, concerned about how it might threaten their autonomy. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, what might be some of the pros and cons to this new change? For sure. So when the NDIS was designed, it built on like decades of work from disabled people about wanting to have control over their supports. And like that sounds a bit kind of airy-fairy, but for disabled people who use personal care and support, like I've used personal care and before the NDIS, I had no say over who came into my house. I barely had say over what day they'd arrive, let alone what hour. And I didn't know who was going to come and I didn't know the kind of how they would deliver the support. So for people who use personal care all the time, this is a particularly big deal. They have control over who the people that, that are coming into their home, getting them out of bed, you know, helping them have a shower, getting them dressed for work, all of that kind of stuff. And the way that that's worked in the current system is for lots of people, the best way for them that that's worked is using unregistered providers. Um, The current registration system is a little bit like a big registration system where it's expensive, there's lots of challenges around going through registration, costs like 20,000 bucks for some organisations, or there's unregistration, and that's it. So that's the current system. And... In that current system, while some people have have used managed to get really good choice and control, support you know employ their own support workers, all that. At the same time, what has also happened, particularly in the last couple of years, is that a lot of significant exploitation is going on, particularly of people with intellectual disability. And there are people who've gone into unregistered providers who've set up group unregistered group homes where they basically pick people up and put them in these places and no one knows where they are. And these are called supported independent living places or SIL and they're with people with lots of support in their packages, but we're really confident that they're not getting those support. So I work at DANA, the Disability Advocacy Network Australia, and we represent all of the disability advocacy services across the country. And advocates tell me all the time that they know of people who've just vanished into these places somewhere in the suburbs and no one knows where they are. So we have these two areas that we've got to try and balance and come up with a registration system that suits both groups and, you know, delivers for both groups of people. And I think that some services, like supported independent living, need to be delivered by registered providers. And um, But we also have to make sure that people can have control and still employ their own support workers. Like, I know people who would never use disability support providers with very good reasons. They've had terrible experiences in institutional care. They've had terrible experiences with conventional disability providers and they want that freedom and that choice to employ the kinds of people that work for them and they absolutely should have that choice. But this is also public money and so we've got to have some kind of record of where this money is being spent 
and what it's being used for, but we can't do it in a way that restricts people's choice of control. I mean, anyway, I'm really confident the review has, has recommended a four-tier system, um, and I'm really confident as we, you know, disabled people are creative and great problem solvers, and I'm really confident we'll be able to come up with a system that preserves people's choice and control for people particularly who are self-managed, but also makes sure that people can't be exploited in the way that they're currently being exploited for their packages, basically, and not being served by having the, you know, who don't have the kind of choice of control that we imagine for everybody in the NDIS. And it is good to read that, as you said, the NDIS is proposing a nuanced approach with different tiers, that it's not going to be this blanket on all different kinds of providers. They're, it seems they are really going to have high risk, low risk, and, and registration requirements will be a reflection of that to avoid, as yeah. you're saying, potential exploitation and abuse. Um, yeah. I want to I chat a bit about the criteria and how that might be changing in the review. So it seems that it, there might be a move away from medical diagnosis to what, and I quote, um, is, is kind of self-determined or maybe it's somebody else that determines it a significant functional impairment. Um, what are your thoughts about this change to the criteria? Mm. Look, I think it is really good, to be honest. Um, so I was part of what's called the co-groups. You'll see that referred to in the review with, with lots of other disabled people. And we were part of kind of designing a different access and planning system that works better for disabled people. And what we heard, we have heard, you know, a lot of, and the review heard as well, that this current system is traumatising. You know, here we have a government public system that entry into it is profoundly traumatising. So... You know, and currently, if you have the money, you can go and, you know, get expensive reports, spend thousands of dollars on reports to say that, you know, yes, you have a functional impairment uh, because you have a particular diagnosis. Um, But if you can't get a diagnosis or your diagnosis is complex or you have multiple disabilities, for example, that collectively work together to give you a significant impairment, none of that is recognised in the current system. And so it means that both people miss out on the support that they need. They may only get support for one disability when another disability is actually what is giving them their functional impairment. And they're not seen as a holistic person in terms of both their the nature of their disability, but also their life circumstances, you know, like where they are in life, what they want to be doing, how much extra outline, you know, family support they have or other supports in the community do they have. I think all of those things need to be taken into account. And so I think it's a really good idea. And I think particularly for kids, really taking away that need to get a diagnosis before you can get support is vital. So... Um, the reviews found that, um, you know, one in five kids has some kind of developmental delay. So this is like a a mainstream issue that we need to be dealing with and providing support for kids where they are rather than asking families to be going through the gauntlet of diagnosis and waiting lists and huge amounts of costs before kids can get any kind of support. And so would those children with a developmental delay be um, assisted in the foundational supports area? Depending on their needs. Yeah, and I think that's part of what we need to figure out. So, of course, there will be some kids who will be manifestly eligible for the NDIS, you know, from the get-go. But I think there will be other kids who will find that, you know, who are currently getting small amounts of allied health as individuals that 
they may actually benefit from having supports in school or in early childhood and doing it with their family. Um, the evidence is really clear that for kids to get great outcomes from early intervention, it's got to be done with their family, so not in isolation. And so that individualised model that works for adults with disability doesn't always work the best for kids and doesn't have the same kind of evidence-based outlook. I've heard um, a few people in the disability advocacy space express concerns uh, that some of these recommendations might exacerbate disadvantage in rural and um, remote areas. What are your thoughts? Will this NDIS review hopefully um, lead to a lessening of the gap that we find so across the board, really, between the country and the city? Mm. As someone who lives in the country, um, it's certainly something that I think about a lot uh, in terms of how the NDIS works out here in the small town that I live in. Um, I know people are really worried about the impact of registration, particularly mm. around, you know, if there's only one service provider in like the district and does registration mean that I actually have to use them and I can't use, you know, the neighbour's gardening service or, you know, my regular cleaner or, you know, the kind of way that I've been able to put together a support system that works for me. Um, And I don't think that's the intention of the review, but it will be really important to be watchful, and I'm certainly going to be doing that as the implementation happens, that we don't have these kind of unintended consequences, because I think that the original market model for the product that the Productivity Commission saw for the NDIS really didn't think through how public services are delivered in Australia outside the cities because it's an issue in everywhere. It's an issue with roads and telecommunications and healthcare and everything else in the country. Why would disability services be any different? So uh, I think that, you know, they call it euphemistically thin markets, which just means there's <laughs> either one or no provider. It's one of my least favourite terms. It's horrible. But it's terrible. But it also, like, I think it, disabled people, you know, are great problem solvers and innovators and have figured out all sorts of ways of managing their supports, with their budgets, and that's what that is absolutely what they should be doing. Um, but the reviews also put a, a fair bit of time and into thinking through and listening to First Nations people with disability, and you know put forward quite a comprehensive idea that has been led by First Nations people with disability, and is part of the kind of move to more community controlled services. So they've talked about in remote areas, in particular, remote communities doing kind of large commissioning pieces of work where, where services are not funded at, at an individual level, um, but there is kind of ways of doing it that the community leads and the community is in control of. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, and I think that there are, you know, elements from First Nations disabled people that we can learn around how to make this work. And so if we think to the future, next steps, it's a five-year, I think what they're calling transition. How can we ensure that we embed co-creation with disabled people to make sure that the NDIS review results in actions that are empowering for the communities? You're on my favourite topic, Alice. (laughs) uh, (laughs) So, yeah, so the big big joint statement that we put out just uh, when the review happened called for a Disability uh, Reform Implementation Council. And this is because, you know, we've got the Disability Royal Commission with its 222 recommendations and then the, the NDIS review with its recommendations. 
and actions, and this is an enormous piece of work with the two large pieces of reform across multiple levels of government. And so far, um, with the DRC, the Disability Royal Commission, there's been a, there's now a task force behind closed doors that we're not part of, and we do not want this to happen with the review. Um, as I continue to say to, to government, uh, you'll get this wrong if you don't have us in the room and at the table. So we are asking absolutely to be at the table, but also to be given the resources that we need to actually do this work and do it well. So. Um, I'm not sure if people realise, but disability representative organisations get a small amount of money from the federal government each year to do systemic advocacy. But we've had these two huge big bits of reform, uh, the Royal Commission and now the Review, uh, land on us on top of all of that. And it's kind of, we're all just going, how do we do this <laughs> on top of everything else? So um, that will be, the government's given more money to the NDIA to implement this. And so we'll be talking with them about making sure that Disabled people in our organisations are not expected to do this kind of on top of our regular work and in our spare time, but we're actually given the time to engage communities to do this well and to fix the NDIS and make it work for the future. I'm getting a sense of what I hope is optimism. Are you feeling hopeful about it all? Oh, I think without the National Cabinet decision, you would be we would be having a very different conversation. Yeah. Um, the NDIS was under real threat uh, until that decision, and I think that we need to be realistic about that. So we, as a community, have fought the fight to save the NDIS for a long time, but we also know that there are really big problems with the way that it's currently working and that there are too many leeches, if you want, uh, you know, clipping the ticket uh, on the way through. And I want that to change. Like, I'm just speaking for me now, where I think that the NDIS, we don't expect other public services to run in, in a totally market environment with no role, no advocacy role for consumers, no market regulation, none of that. But somehow with the NDIS, that's exactly what we've rolled out. And we need to be really clear around, you know, who delivers these services, how are disabled people more involved in that, and how do we actually set up a system that is for disabled people first and foremost? Um, often when I talk to disability providers and other people who work in this space, I'm like, this is your livelihood, but this is our lives. Mm. And we, we have very different stakes in the NDIS, like people maybe making a business out of it or doing that. But for disabled people, it's literally how we get out of bed and how we function in the world. And... So providing, getting the services that we need, getting access to the same kind of mainstream services that everybody else gets access to is really important. And, you know, I think that National Cabinet Agreement gives us a good framework to start with. Now we have to actually get down to the hard work around getting it to happen and holding governments to account, you know, and uh, their feet to the fire. So, um, yeah, count me up for that. We're out of time, Elle, but I wanted to say, yeah, thank you for your tireless uh, advocacy and taking the time to chat with us. And I, I'm sure that you will continue to hold the government to account. And I'm, yeah, really looking forward to seeing how the NDIS review um, develops, it seems like. Hopefully the future is brighter for the NDIS and people that it affects. 
Thanks for joining us. Have a good day, Elle. See ya. Thanks, Alice. That was Elle Gibbs speaking to us about the NDIS review. A really great piece of work and um, if you haven't had a look at the review, they do have a simple text offering that breaks down the key recommendations. Uh, have a look at it. It's um, yep, good to be across this given how many people in Australia have a lived experience of disability. All right, I'm going to play you the clean edit of Miss Kanina's pinnacle bitch um thought about the dirty one but it's a little bit too dirty for 9 38 in the morning stay tuned at 10 i'm going to be talking to professor joanna nalau who just came back from cop 28 about climate adaptation what happened at cop 28 how are we faring on the global stage in terms of resourcing for adaptation you're listening to the grapevine my name's alice covering for dylan You're listening to 3RRR 102.7, The Grapevine. My name's Alice, filling in for Dylan until midday today. It's currently 9.52 and you're hearing the final notes of the track Blue Gums by Hybrid Man, a Melbourne bunch of Melbourne-based producers um, who released Dust and Liquid in November this year. In the middle there, Andras and Oscar's Temperature of Love, which was recently released, and then at the top, Miss Kanina's Pinnacle Bitch, the clean edit. Miss Kanina does a great live show and performed at Triple R live a couple of weeks ago so if you get the chance to see Miss Kanina perform take it up stay tuned uh in about five minutes or so I'm going to be chatting to Professor Joanna Nalau who recently came back from COP28 Joanna's an adaptation scientist and we're going to be chatting about climate adaptation and what some of the key or significant events were that happened at COP. And to take us there, I'm going to play the track Abyad Aswad by Ali, who were here recently for Meredith and, like Miss Kanina, also did a performance at the Triple R performance space. If you're a subscriber, you know, you can come and see some wonderful live shows that are usually held here on a Friday eve at Triple R, free of charge. The performance space is on a bit of a summer holiday, but definitely stay tuned on the website when we hit 2024 to um, yeah make the most of some wonderful gigs. You're listening to Triple R, Grapevine. My name's Alice. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to 102.7 Triple R. My name's Alice and I'm covering Dylan this morning on The Grapevine, keeping you company until midday. It's going on 10am and I'm really thrilled to be chatting shortly with Professor Joanna Nalau, who recently attended COP28. Joanna's an adaptation scientist with a PhD in climate change adaptation at Griffith University and is on the line to share 
her experience of COP and, um, yeah, tell us really what some of those key moments were in terms of climate adaptation. Thanks for joining us on Triple R. How are you, Joanna? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, really good. Before we dig into um, some of the events at COP28, I wanted to set the scene for listeners. Could you tell us a little bit about what climate adaptation is and maybe give us some examples? Yeah, sure. Look, um, yes, I've I've been working on climate adaptation, I think, since 2007. Um, So it's basically thinking about the future. So how can we make better decisions today if we know that we are going to see, for instance, in Australia, we are going to see more cyclones, more heat waves, sea level rise, more flooding. So how can we start preparing and making decisions to keep our communities safe? So, I mean, obviously, at the moment, uh, we are all hearing the news that's happening in North Queensland. So we know that there will be these types of uh, or similar types of impacts a lot more in the future. So how can we make plans for emergency management, um, where we are building new housing, for instance, to make sure that communities can can be kept safe in the future as well. The final COP28 text called for parties to, quote, and I quote, transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science, end quote. So it seems like adaptation always comes second to mitigation. Mitigation, I guess, namely reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And indeed, it is the second long-term goal in the Paris Agreement, I think. So at COP, did it seem like adaptation was really, um, I guess, sidelined to conversations about greenhouse gas mitigation and reduction? Mm, that's <laughs> that, that's a really good observation. I think you know uh, if we go back in the history of the convention. So in the 1990s, when the convention uh, was decided on, so that that was you know people thought that we can reduce emissions. Everyone's just going to do it. All the countries will come together. So we don't need to adapt. So already then adaptation was you know it wasn't a, you know a real or serious topic but as we have seen you know the emissions have been have been going up and we see a lot more climate impacts so adaptation is really a reality uh, for many and yeah I think adaptation does get often often sidelined I think however for for this cop even though there was a really big focus on the first global stock take on getting getting the language in because these are legal legal agreements um so getting the language in on, on, on fossil fuels was really important but the other really important item that hasn't been really highlighted in the media that much is the global goal on adaptation so that's in article 7 in Paris agreement so that's really about what level of resilience does the global community want to achieve as a whole. And we were really, really, for Australia, we were really lucky because the, um, the co-facilitation was given to Assistant Minister Jenny McAllister and then Minister of Environment Maisa Rojas from Chile. So they were really, two really uh, powerful women were really um, spearheading heading that process. And there was an agreement on, on, the, on the framework for the, for the global goal. So what's the next step then for the global um, goal for adaptation post-COP28? 
so there's in the agreement text um, there's quite quite a lot uh, so for instance future work so now there's a lot more discussions of the countries will need to have well what do, what do for instance the indicators look like so how do we know that we are actually making progress so the agreement text at the moment outlines different types of aspirations different themes so we see water there's a health ecosystems uh, biodiversity uh, cultural heritage. So there's quite a broad, uh, broad set of themes and food systems, obviously. So now the challenge really is for the next two years, the countries will have to then keep the conversation going and go, okay, well, how do we know that we are progressing? What are the indicators? What are the targets? What are the approaches that, that we can agree on? It seems that adaptation, unlike mitigation, has a less, um, like how to say it, a less seductive return on investment for developed nations. So developed nations, if they reduce their emissions in the longer term, there's a lot of environmental social benefits um, as climate change is not going to be as extreme. Whereas if they fund um, developing nations to have better climate change adaptation, they don't really see the benefits for them, I guess. Mm. Um, so is there any, is the global goal on adaptation going to help address what seems to be this adaptation finance gap between the developed and the developing nations? So I think, I mean, what's important about the global goal is to know that it is global. So it is a goal for Australia as well. It is a goal for, for UK. It is a, uh, you know, a goal for developed countries as well. So part, I mean, and, and part of the discussions are always about finance, um, and, and that's across all every single agenda item. So every, you know, whether it's mitigation or adaptation, we always, you know, talk about finance. And the latest adaptation gap report uh, from UNEP really showed how, how big that gap is. And now we have the establishment on the first day of the COP on the loss and damage fund, and I think there's about um, I don't know seven seven hundred million dollars uh, that has been pledged into that fund now. But that also meant that we saw in negotiations that the adaptation finance wasn't as forthcoming than um, to the adaptation fund, for instance. But the global goal is it's the, the finance stream or the finance discussions come up everywhere. Um, so it is it is really one of those big enablers that developing countries will need. But I think you point point to a really important point that often, you know, with adaptation, we don't necessarily see the investments um, even in Australia in the next, you know, let's say ten years. But we need to start thinking about this investments we we can do now so that we. When we have more climate impacts, if we have more cyclones, we know that the, the housing stock is more resilient. We know that, you know, there's, there's less, less damages that come from climate impacts in the future. So it's really important to start thinking about the investments that we can make today. I want to return to the loss and damage fund because, as you know, it, was, it happened on the first day and it did seem to be this really celebrated event that um, it was established. Why do you think... It seems like a vicious, vicious circus, a, circ, um, a vicious circle. So, more investment on loss and damage, less investment potentially on adaptation, which means that when climate change extreme events occur, we're worse prepared. So, there's going to be more loss and damage, which means you need more money to kind of recover from it. Why was the loss and damage? What are some of the politics that was driving that at COP28 to be established? I mean, the, it's been an ongoing issue in the in the negotiations. So, so basically, the argument is that we have already 
um, a certain level of uh, global warming that is causing impacts, in particular in developing countries. Uh, so, you know, so there is already existing loss and damage. And, and adaptation is something, it's often precautionary. It's, it's something that is proactive planning to reduce the losses in, in the future. So, you know, some of the, especially developing countries are saying, well, we already see the impact. We already have, you know, massive losses and damages that, you know, some of that can, can be linked to, to human-caused climate change. So that's where the argument and the conversation is. And I think for developed countries, it has been really important that it's not just seen as compensation, but it is something that... Um, something that can be discussed and then that there, there is finance then to support the recovery. But I think what's really, really important is that when, you know, when any action is taken, adaptation is then embedded in that. So in the disaster management area, we often talk about um, building back better. Uh, so not just replacing like for like, but if, for instance, if there's a bridge that gets washed away, then we should be looking at the future climate and the climate scenarios and actually building a more resilient bridge, not just um, just replacing it what we had before, because we know that climate is changing. Um, and, and with the loss and damage fund, I mean, it wasn't, uh, I think <laughs> for a lot of uh, people outside the process, they thought, oh, well, that's a that's, um, really quick, quick resolution on the first day. But the fund was established uh, 12 months ago in Egypt, and there has been a transitional committee that has been, you know, that has had members from developing countries and developed countries. And it's actually been a really difficult process to, you know, to come to agreement how the um, fund would work and, and to get to that decision text. So it has been a 12-month, uh, more than 12-month process to, to get the decision. But I think a lot of countries felt that it needed to, it really needs to, it needed to be done and decided. And so, and the UEA presidency has been, so the COP presidency has been really, really integral in that process to get the countries to the, to the point that they could agree on the text on the first day. What do you think uh, is a good framework if we're talking about country-driven adaptation? So uh, we, we have the adaptation, the global um, goals for adaptation and a certain pool of funding that is globally available. But it, as far as um, that UNEP report goes, it seems, does it need to be, I can't even remember the number, maybe 10 to 18 times higher um, mm. than, it, than it currently is. Could you explain a bit some of um, the complexities around how a bucket of money might go to a country and how that country might actually implement an adaptation strategy? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's there's lots of different ways how how climate finance and adaptation finance in particular goes to countries. So in the convention, we have the adaptation fund, and and that. So that funds only climate adaptation um, projects and programs. And so for them, what a lot of people don't know that they they don't just fund random projects, but they really focus on what, what are the country priorities. So, for instance, if so most developing uh, countries have a national adaptation plan or, um, or, or program. And so they always look at, okay, so what is the country saying that it's this priority? Does the project or the funding proposal align with that? And if it doesn't, then they have to have more discussions with, the, with, the, with that particular country to understand how the actions that are being proposed are going to support the national, national adaptation. 
but there's also lots of uh, lots of finance coming through the more traditional funding sources, for instance, for overseas development aid. And that's often a bilateral conversation, for instance, between Australia and a particular, let's say, a country in the Pacific. And so there's also those finance flows. So some people kind of think that, oh, it's only money that's coming through the convention. But there's, there's lots of different, um, different ways. And then, you know, there's so much money going also through NGOs. Uh, that implement the more community-based projects on the ground. And we have increasingly seen foundations being really interested in, in funding climate adaptation and also the private sector as well. So there's, I suppose there's multiple finance sources, but then it's also... Um, so, for instance, Australia, I mean, we don't have a national adaptation plan yet. So that process uh, is starting in 2024. Uh, so trying try to look at the national national priorities and where they where the kind of federal level investments then would be prioritised. You wrote a piece in the conversation. Speaking of priorities, um, in twenty nineteen, that was talking about how to triage essentially climate adaptation strategies. That the amount of um, strategies that we need to deal with climate change effects are countless and we have a limited um, funding pool. So when this funding, um, however it works, is kind of streaming down to a country and, and we're doing that triage process, are there two levels? Is it the country level where maybe that's guided by their adaptation plan and then um, there's the priorities that might be set at the more kind of global stage uh, at events such as COP? How does that kind of work? So I think... The convention is about countries agreeing on the kind of broad principles, but then it is especially the, um, the, the points and national adaptation plans in the convention, those are really highlighting, you know, the country priorities. And so underneath the national adaptation plan, there's a country-driven process of consultation and participation. And so that's often what we've seen in developing countries. It's, it's getting different stakeholder groups together to try to understand also really at the grassroots level, where are the adaptation needs and what is happening in the communities. Um, local governments, state, regional governments play obvious, obviously a really big role. And we have increasingly seen a uh, leading role for cities. So um, so, th- so there's different networks to cities where, where they're exchanging that and, and collaborating as well. But it is really so. The whole climate, climate kind of global convention is bringing countries together. But then it's, it's really important that that the words, for instance, country driven, remain remain in that process. So, if we think to the future post COP twenty eight, what are the next twelve months going to be in terms of climate adaptation preparing for COP twenty nine? So there's quite <laughs> quite a lot and lots of work to be done. I think, yes, yes. <laughs> but I think you know adaptation is it is in the global goal, it is in the national adaptation plan stream. Um, but there's also lots of other streams that kind of support adaptation. But each of those will will often have workshops. It will have designated government uh, public servants uh, that that will work then with their counterparts trying to see, for instance, on the global goals. So we have the discussion on kind of targets, indicators, also looking at the science. Um, and that's where scientific community in particular can play a big supporting role, um, having conversations about, you know, what, what is the best science that we have um, and how, how can we support, uh, for instance, the, the identification of indicators, 
uh, and and intergovernments of panel on climate change, for instance, is starting their next or has started their next the seventh cycle of assessment. So I think there's a lot of lot of interactions between different groups that that can support the process as well. But then it is preparing, um, and and there is so so the COP is not the only uh, process in the convention. So in June every year there's it's, there's a meeting as well in Germany in Bonn, which is more a technical one. So then they really, really look at the kind of technical details of the of the agreement, um, and, and then in different work streams. And um, that's a subsidiary body meeting. So that's two weeks in Germany, and that's really kind of halfway mark of the year. And, and that's where the tech. So that's not really where the ministers go, but it's really focused on the technical stuff trying to come into agreement. Well, what does this actually look like? This text that we agreed on. You know what? Are, what? Are, how do we actually implement? What? Do, what does it mean? What, what? You know, what is an indicator? So they have a lot of a lot of these conversations there in June. So before we finish up, I wanted to ask how you felt leaving COP twenty eight. It seems like it's such a um, maybe a, a whirlwind, an intense event. Uh, what? What? Yeah. What were some of those feelings that you had? I think. <laughs> I think I would probably say confused um, in, in the sense that we had never, ever so had this many people attending. There were, you know, so many hundreds and hundreds of side events. The venue was massive. And then because I was following the negotiations on the global goal and adaptation, so and those times kept changing as well, depending, you know, how the bilateral negotiations were, were going um, on, on, the, on the different paragraphs. So I was trying to follow the negotiations that were in the main area and then there were lots and lots of side events and networking opportunities. So, And, and of course, I'm following the science, adaptation science side. So, you know, where where is the kind of new frontier? What are people saying that is, is innovative? Um, how can we support countries better on, on thinking and planning for adaptation? But I think I would say there's so there's been so much reporting after the COP. So every person I feel like and every news outlet has their own take. And I think it's really difficult to kind of go, okay, this is what happened because there's so many versions of what the outcomes were and how we should interpret those outcomes. I think for me, what has been positive is that they got the language, they have now the language and. It will come down to also individual countries, how they are changing their energy system. So the, the COP president really, really, you know, laid it out and said, this is the first step. Because I think the world was just waiting that we'll switch off fossil fuels tomorrow. And we know that a lot of, especially in developing countries, so many people are reliant on fossil fuel um, energy at the moment. So I think it is about, you know, taking further steps at the at national level and different levels through private sector initiatives as well to start changing the energy systems and, and that will take time. But I think in the end, I think I was, I'm still positive because there is a lot of willingness uh, across and we have seen more and more private sector engagement as well and especially in adaptation that there are, you know, new organisations coming into the picture that think, well, how can we innovate and, and finance adaptation across the world. Yeah, it sounds like a huge event. And even you speak of confusion when I was preparing for this interview <laughs> and, and reading all these different media reports. I was confused. It's, it's mm. a monstrosity of an event. 
Um, but thank you so much for joining us this morning and elucidating uh, about, yeah, what happened at COP28 in terms of adaptation. Thanks, Joanna. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks. That was Professor Joanna Nalau speaking to us about adaptation at COP28 and some of the key um, events that happened there. My name's Alice. If you've just tuned in, I'm filling in for Dylan this morning on The Grapevine on Triple R. Stay tuned. In about 25 minutes, I'll be speaking to Dr. Kim Borg from Behaviour Works, which is an organisation associated with Monash, about behaviour change in the realm of sustainability, uh, more specifically looking at some of the recommendations in the Victorian government's 10-year recycling plan. To take to get us headed there, I'm going to play you a track by Little Sims, which I've been really enjoying. Angel, you're listening to Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. You're listening to The Grapevine on Triple R. I'm filling in for Dylan. My name's Alice. Here until midday today. At the top of that bracket, you heard Diner by Melbourne-based Maple Glider. That was followed by Suplex by the wonderful Native Cats, who I believe are based in Tassie, or at least they were last time. And to round it off, No Centre by Melbourne-based Lehman B. Smith. All those tracks, I believe, were released 2023, celebrating wonderful Australian music. I'm really excited that I'm about to chat to Dr. Kim Borg, who is a behavioural scientist with Behaviour Works, an organisation associated with Monash University. And Kim does a lot of research into behavioural science and how an understanding of this can help us to change our behaviours to live in a more sustainable way. So thanks, Kim, for joining us. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I wanted to have this chat uh, with the backdrop of the Victorian government's 10-year recycling plan. Um, it's pretty ambitious, some of the uh, some of the things that they want to do. Um, namely, I mean, I want to focus, for example, cut total waste generation by 15% per capita by 2030, divert 80% of waste from landfill by 2030. I mean, huge, huge targets. And so in your research in terms of behaviour change, what are some of the, I guess, um, let's start with the social aspect. What are some of the, as, as humans, we're social animals, what are some of the drivers that we can think about in terms of um, social capital that might be utilised by governments when thinking about policy in terms of trying to encourage us to take more sustainable behaviours? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, our behaviour is complex and it's driven by many, many different things, and waste reduction is is no exception. When it comes to the social elements of things, there are a few different parts to it. One is very simple. It's known as social norms, and this is what we believe other people are doing, particularly other people who are like us and other people who are important to us. 
We also are interested not just in what they're doing, but whether they will approve or disapprove of our behaviour as well. So those two elements typically combine to create this, this idea of social norms. And we want to be normal. We want to fit in. We want to do what we think is right and what we think others are doing. There's a few other social components as well, things like social modelling. If we see other people doing a particular behaviour, especially if it's in a new environment or a new context, like when a new policy is introduced, that can help give us some guidance about how we should also be behaving. And so then if we're talking about social norms, I assume that when trying to tip over the minority into a majority to change social norms, it makes sense that you would target, um, I guess, the most likely people to adopt those behaviours. Yeah, so there's a bit of research around social norms. Sometimes it's really helpful if most people are doing the desirable behaviour already and governments or any sort of communicators can use that information to help get those, you know, laggards on board. So if 80% of people are already doing, you know, the right thing, that messaging can be really helpful to tell the others, you know, you want to get on board, it is normal, it is right, other people will approve of it. There's also some research that shows that the social norm tipping point is actually a lot smaller than we might expect, somewhere between about 20% to 30%. So if we have one established rule, and then suddenly 20 to 30% of people change their behaviour to a new established social rule, that can be enough to send a majority of people into the new behaviour as well. It was interesting. I, I live in Moreland and about a year ago there was a bin audit on my street and they put um, very visible tags on each bin that were colour-coded, so green if you'd done the right thing in terms of separating different waste streams, red obviously saying that, you didn't succeed, it sends a real message like you failed, you're not doing it properly. Mm -hmm. So that seemed to be really targeting this idea of social norms because you could see what your neighbours were doing and I guess kind of assess the street as a whole. However, I was thinking that if you did get a red, it really was playing into, I guess, some of those more negative emotions as well in terms of shame. Like what does research show around, I guess, um, encouraging positive sentiment versus those more negative feelings like shame in terms of changing behaviour? Yeah, so the bin tags is an interesting one, especially if it is very visible because it can make private behaviours into public ones because suddenly your neighbours know how good or bad you are at sorting your rubbish into the right bins, which, as you mentioned, can either make you feel good about yourself because you're doing the right thing and others aren't, or it might make you think that, well, no one else is doing the right thing, so why should I do it, which is sort of the unintended consequences of social norms, or, as you say, it can evoke feelings of shame or guilt, which is a very common communication technique to try and encourage attitude change and behaviour change, but it needs to be used with caution because people don't want to feel negative feelings and there are multiple ways that they can avoid them, which includes things like cognitive dissonance or turning off or making some sort of justification like, oh, you know, it wasn't me, it was someone else in my household who did this, it's not my fault, or, you know, the, the system is too complicated, it's not up to me to do it. And so there's this clear balance between trying to let people know about, you know, 
the fact that they may not have done the right thing or sometimes getting their attention by maybe making them feel a little bit guilty, a little bit shameful. But the important part is to leave them feeling empowered, to make sure that even if they've done the wrong thing and they might feel a bit bad about it, we leave them feeling hope that they can change, they can improve, they have the ability to do the right thing. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, and that leads us, um, I want to dig into some of your research around media messaging to do with single-use plastics and, um, yeah, some of the efficacy around that. So what has your research shown in terms of different types of media messaging that might play to, I guess, the more hopeful versus the more disempowered affect um, and how that influences behaviour around single-use plastics? Yeah, sure. And so... So with my research, I was really interested in this idea of social norms and how that can influence behaviour, but also using media messages that are kind of already out there. So things like documentaries that you might come across snippets of them on social media. And they are designed in a lot of ways to make you feel something. They're designed to make you think something. So a lot of times we want people to know how big a problem is in the hope that it will make them feel this, you know, big problem, we need to do something about it, this is worrying, this is scary, we should do something about it. And there's a couple of different effects that we picked up. Uh, Number one, we found that if you do tell people how big a problem is that has an implication of behaviour behind it, they can actually take away the unintended consequence, which is that the social norm is to do the bad behaviour. So I was specifically looking at using single-use plastics versus avoiding it and found that if you show people mountains of plastic in landfill or plastic in the environment, you can actually send a signal that using single-use plastic is normal, which, as we talked about earlier, is not necessarily the message we want to share. The other thing I found is that the messages that were not only effective in changing people's intended behaviour, so they intended to avoid plastic more often, but also evoked a sense of emotion, but it was a relatively gentle emotion. So it was a bit of shock and a bit of sadness, but they remembered that feeling. It wasn't super intense, but it was enough that it sort of shocked them and stuck with them. And that involved messages that showed the impact that plastic pollution is having, particularly on wildlife. So um, seabirds, I think, was the main focus in that area. So it seems like um, in the Victorian plan for recycling, there is a lot of emphasis on reducing waste consumption. And then as consumers, you know, the main way that we're experiencing that is this new um, Forbian waste stream and cash for cans and stuff like that. However, if we're wanting to go from a linear economy, which is more you take or you buy and then you dispose of to a circular economy, we need to move past recycling essentially and yet it seems that this is where all the emphasis is in your research with behavioral works you um created a behavioral roadmap to circular consumption and you identified eight key behaviors to reduce material consumption and the three that would have the largest potential impact are to borrow the item or service to buy secondhand or to buy built to last all of which are really not about, okay, let's put our stuff in the right bin, but let's try and reduce the amount of material that is circulating around the economy. So why is the emphasis on 
recycling? Is that because we have to start at the easiest, I guess, target in terms of changing social norms and once people feel empowered and successful around that, that we're going to try and, I guess, build out in how um, people do their behaviours in that wider avoiding, reducing, reusing space? Really good question. And as a behavioural scientist, I'll be the first to tell you that with any problem, and including waste generation, there are so many different behaviours and so many different people or actors, as we call them, who have a role to play. And that includes government, it includes households and individuals, it also includes businesses, community groups and everything in between. And all of those groups could do so many different behaviours. So for someone like the government, when they are trying to choose which behaviours they're going to enable or encourage or discourage, they need to do some form of prioritisation, essentially, because it's really hard and ill-advised to try and change all of those behaviours at once. So as you mentioned, we did some work with uh, a whole bunch of different experts in waste and circular economy to figure out what is the big list, what are all the different behaviours that all the different actors could do to enable a circular economy in Australia. And that's where we sort of ran through this process, came up with these kind of eight high-level behaviours and these three priority behaviours. And that was based on how much influence changing those behaviours could have on the wider system. So for a government perspective, starting with something like recycling, which people are familiar with, is quite helpful. I imagine it probably also had something to do with the context, which is another huge thing that influences behaviour. Um, as you may or may not know, a few years ago there was you know, the big export ban on a lot of our recyclables from Australia from the countries that we used to sell it to. And suddenly we had this influx of recycling that was staying in Australia that we had no ability to do anything with. So one of the first big opportunities was to reform the recycling system in Australia. And I assume that the hope is that we will then lead to something we call spillover, which is when you have a desirable behaviour in one particular area, that then similar behaviours are more likely to be taken up in the future. So if we start with recycling, maybe next people will start moving on to repurposing. So instead of recycling those uh, glass jars in the new glass bins when they come out, people might reuse them for drinking glasses in the house. And then they might move on to something else further up the waste hierarchy. I guess, and as you're saying, behaviour change is so complex. As recycling becomes more entrenched as the social norm, I guess there's also the possibility that people are more resistant to reusing things because in their mind, recycling is the sustainable option. Yeah, and that is, again, we talk about unintended consequences a lot and that whole idea of prioritisation. So if we do ultimately want to move to a circular economy, recycling definitely will have a role to play, but it needs to be sort of towards the bottom of the option so that people are in their forefront of their mind thinking about things like borrowing and repurposing, renting, um, repairing, and that would then encourage businesses to do the same, to offer rental services, to offer repair services, to design and build items that are built to last. So while we do, you know, we will always need recycling to some extent, it should be towards the bottom of our priority list eventually. 
What are some um, what's some advice or some recommendations you can give to listeners who might be feeling a sense of that green fatigue or a bit overwhelmed or even a bit <laughs> guilt a bit guilty about trying to live you know more ethically more sustainably? I mean, what what is a good where's a good place to start? Uh, a good place to start is small. <laughs> Uh, as I mentioned before, don't ever try and change all your behaviours at once, whether that's you know yourself as an individual or government trying to change society. Um, always start small and focus on the things that are within your control. And then increment. So once you've got the hand of a new habit that you've been trying to form, uh, for example, when plastic bags were banned, a lot of people found it difficult to remember to bring new bags to the supermarket, to the shops anytime they went out. Whereas now, people don't even think about it. They just grab the bags on the way out the door. So once you've mastered something, try and look at the next one. Don't try and do it all together. And don't, don't put too much pressure on yourself to be perfect. I think it's really important that everyone tries a little bit because if everyone can move together, we get this collective efficacy that's far more important than one person being perfect. And it seems that it's important for the individual to really celebrate the wins and not feel guilty about doing something because it, a sustainable behaviour makes them feel good as a person. Yeah, absolutely. So individuals can do the right thing sometimes. They're going to stuff up sometimes as well, and that's okay. I think it is about absolutely celebrating the wins and also just being a kind of mini advocate in your own social circles. So if you do figure out a really novel way of doing something to reduce waste in your own life that you find really easy and effective, share it with friends and family. They might not all be interested, <laughs> they might not all take it up, but it can spread throughout a social circle. Yeah, and change social norms. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kim, and sharing your research on behavioural science. Have a great day. No worries. Thanks for having me. That was Dr Kim Borg chatting to us from Behaviour Works, which is based in Melbourne. You're listening to Triple R. My name's Alice, covering Dylan for The Grapevine. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.